1: Last hour we heard from TD Alan Kelly and we also heard clips from the Taoiseach Hall Martin and uh, Willie O'Dea TD for Limerick City uh, talking about the need for an elective hospital in the Midwest, um, in the Limerick region effectively, Um, but we also understand from a parliamentary reply to Alan Kelly that the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly has ruled out an elective hospital for the region um, and a report was commissioned by Professor Colette Cown as the Chief Executive of University of Limerick Hospitals Group by Deloitte and you've been hearing about that I'm sure maybe reading about it as well it's recommended more investment needed uh, to meet current and future demands. The report looked into staffing and capacity, recommends an increase in staff at the hospital, also a call for additional medical and nursing staff in the ED, the emergency department, and to extend the operating hours at the acute medical unit. And Colette Conn joins me in the studio as does uh, Professor Brian Lenehan who's Chief Clinical Director of UL Hospitals uh, Group. And uh, we know, good morning to both of you. Good morning. you uh, appeared before uh, politicians quite recently and um, issue of extra capacity and elective hospital came up. But it does appear from the Parliamentary reply that it isn't going to happen for the Limerick region.
2: Yes, uh, thank you. We appeared at the Oireachtas Health Committee last week and indeed we gave a report uh, a presentation to the local politicians, the Oireachtas Committee and the Regional Health Forum last Friday as well here in, in Limerick. And we went through the report with them. So in March 20 of this year, 2022, the Executive Management Team and myself discussed a fresh eyes approach to look at the UL Hospitals Group because I'm eight years in the job now and I've been talking about bed capacity uh, ad nauseum, as you know, for a long, long time. And it's it's relative to the reconfiguration of services in 2009 as well. So, We're very glad to have the report. It was based on our data. It was analysed very carefully. There was over 25 stakeholder consultations with our staff and all of my team. And I stayed out of the interview process for that reason, to allow Delight to do their work. And the report is very clear. We need 302 beds to uh, 20, uh, thir- 36 to deliver what patients need in this region and that is the fact 200 of them are new beds and the other 100 are to replace the long nightingale wards which is a risk area and it's even more evident since the pandemic with outbreaks so it is our view that we should be included in the Midwest in a, an elective hospital for public patients for subacute care so that we can move those patients there they can be operated on we're not cancelling them and we can run uh, University Hospital Limerick as an emergency hospital uh, complex surgery and cancer services
1: And this to be very clear is on top of the beds that have relatively recently come on stream and the 96 bed unit that will soon come on stream
2: that's right. Um, the 96-bed unit's work is commencing there. This week, actually, the preparation work has started. CISC have been awarded the contract and they're starting. We'll be turning this out next week on it. That's uh, Half of those beds will be for the Nightingale wards, so the replacement beds. Uh, people do ask us, why don't you make them all new beds? However, if any patient or if the public has been in the nightingale ward, they tell you it's the most, uh, most difficult place to be and it's not safe. So definitely half those beds would be replacement beds. So mm. there'll be 48 new beds out of that.
1: Do you have any explanation as to why they're talking about elective mm. hospitals in other urban areas, but not here, when we're told, including by government politicians interviewed on this show, that there is an acceptance at the highest level that we have a particularly acute issue in memory.
2: Yeah, to be fair to uh, the government and the politicians, when the elective hospital models were mooted uh, for Cork and Galway, they were looking at a model that would do day case surgery on patients it would be low acuity, they'd close on a Friday evening, they'd reopen on a Monday morning. We have Nina Ennis and St John's who do really good work particularly Nina and Ennis in day care surgery already, but what we want is an elective hospital for sub-acute surgery that would be open seven days a week so that patients would be cared for there and they'd turn up there for their elective work and we wouldn't be cancelling them. So, to be fair, the initial model for elective hospitals uh, needs to change in the sense to deal with more complex surgery that's required, especially after the pandemic.
1: Would St. John's do the job if the funding was available? I mean, there is a plan in St. John's, isn't there, anyway? Is.
2: Yes. Yeah. So, St. John's uh, launched their strategy a couple of weeks ago. I have met with their board. and meeting the uh, bishop and the CEO next week again. And they have pitched for beds for a long time. And that's a national decision with the HSE. But we will support uh, an elective hospital uh, for public patients um, and anywhere in the region. And uh, it's not, we have no choice in that. We don't mind. And they do good work already and they have a five day service. It's just a very constrained by their infrastructure. Mm. And is there
1: anything short of that that can uh, assist? I I mean, for example, how much of the solution could be your proposed partnership uh, with the UPMC, the medical centre?
2: Yes, so UPMC met us about 12 months ago and indeed met with St. John's and I alerted the CEO to that. And, they, and we shared our data for them with them as well around population health. UPMC have an important role in Limerick with the City Council. They want to regenerate a, a very important area and it's important for the people of that area. And they have a lot to offer up more than just a hospital and I know they're opening a sports Uh, injury centre in the um, LIT, which is a new name now, of course. (laughs) Tooth. And so UPMC for us, they would put up the capital, they would build it, of course, and they would look then for it to be a Section 38 hospital. That's a big ask of government. It's a big ask of the HSC. Uh, What's a
1: Section
2: 38? So St. John's would be Section 38. So they have a service level agreement with me and I fund them each year. And when we work out the monies, it probably would work well that they could build a, a, a very... Um, span new facility uh, that is uh, from a non-profit organisation
1: and that would help to an extent with capacity to what extent
2: so uh, you could do your surgery there they could do some um, medical assessment Uh, they'll actually build any model that we want but it does. It does require funding through uh, Section Thirty Eight.
1: Right, and, and there isn't government sign off right now.
2: Not at all. No, no. It's revenue. They, we would have revenue funding, but we'd go into an agreement with them where our consultants would work there.
1: Because without going too much into the history of this, there would have been an expectation around the time of reconfiguration of more private hospitals. Uh, I, there was one mooted out the end of the Dock Road, not far from where we are Sorry. ourselves. There was even one mooted on the grounds of a Dare Manor at one point, I remember, oh. and they, they didn't um, materialise either.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have a very we've a very low uh, private hospital base. We, ha- we work very closely with the scores, Barringtons but and they're doing their build and there'll the always be lots of work there but we have a very low base. If you look at Galway they have two very big private hospitals and and the pri- a private patient and public patient everyone should have equal access. So when I say public on, only elective hospital of course private patients could use it as well.
1: Hmm. We're talking to Cadet Cowan, who is the CEO of University of Limerick Hospitals Group and as I mentioned Professor Brian Lennon is the Chief Clinical Director of the Hospitals Group and he is uh, with with us uh, as well. Um, the ministerial intervention and the group that has examined what's happening around the ED and, and the hospital um, generally, what's that been about and, and what's arisen from it, Brian?
0: So that that came about, as you said, following the intervention of the, the Minister for Health and there was a team from the HSE came down to support the hospital group um, to look at our staffing, to look at our capacity and to look at our processes and to see together with their support how we could optimise what we already have and for them to do their own analysis of what they thought we needed. The Deloitte report was commissioned well in advance of the support team um, coming in um, to the region and we worked very closely with them. Initially we had some um, exploratory meetings and then they were in for a four-week period where we changed some of our processes. Um, we enhanced some of the processes
1: we have around patient flow. Um, and again, look, obviously, I'm not an expert here, and our listeners aren't either. Can you give me a simple example of, of how that worked? So, so,
0: focusing on the time from a patient's arrival in the ED to triage, the time for them to see a doctor, the time for them to get a bed, and making sure we identify patients that are ready for discharge early in the morning, affecting that discharge early transferring patients to our Model 2s earlier in the day, trying to maximise the number of of discharges we have, working with the community, trying to make sure the occupancy in community rehab beds, community nursing homes was maximised and trying to work on that integration piece, putting our own team
1: together And getting a renewed focus on what we were already doing. Did this team say to you there are examples elsewhere in the country where you're doing this better but you're not doing this as well? There would be some areas where they would have seen um,
0: different methods of work in other hospital groups um, and we would have looked at implementing them and there would be other areas where they would, they would say you're already doing this very well but if you had an additional 10 staff to work in the patient flow department you would get more timely discharges More, you'd be able to do what you're doing but do it more effectively so they supported us um, in putting additional staff in place it's very difficult for us to com- to independently continue go looking for additionality when you have somebody that comes in from the outside and says they need it then you can put it in place.
1: Do you believe then that the process and the outworkings of the process will have an impact this winter on someone listening who ends up in the emergency department?
0: So the key impact it has, we do not have any patients on trolleys, on wards, since we worked with the HSC support team or the PMIU. So prior to their coming in to support us, we had trolleys on wards. We looked at the process. We haven't had a trolley on a ward since. We still have, unfortunately, a number of patients on trolleys and corridors in the ED. But that number is less than
1: it was. And we're working to reduce that on a daily basis. But how did you manage that? In, because the absolute numbers then must be impacted if you don't have someone on a ward on a trolley. Because a trolley is, is a kind of a bed. I mean, it's, it's not what you want. So how have you done that?
0: Again working on the process of flowing the patient through the system in a more efficient manner. If you have if you know if you have two extra patients on a ward, you know it it just it it impedes flow. You already have two extra. If a bed becomes available, do you put a patient into the bed or do you take a patient from the ED, whereas not having them there, the focus is on the patient admission, the patient's care, the patient's discharge, and not the patient on the trolley. They're not there anymore. And then you have this continuous pull from the ED trying to get the patients from the ED into the empty bed as quick as possible and you don't have a patient on a trolley that requires consideration on the corridor
1: Right, well look, I, there's always enormous interest in this among our listeners for obvious reasons so uh, I'll ask you both to stay with me across the break, uh, we're talking to Professor Brian Lennon who's the Chief Clinical Director of UL Hospitals Group and the CEO uh, Colette Cowan as well and we'll be back in just a moment Your views Your news Your Limerick Today with Joe. I was chatting this morning to Colette Cowan, is the CEO of University of Limerick Hospitals Group, and Brian Lenton is the Chief Clinical Director of the group, and they are both with me in the studio. Um, and obviously, we can only touch on this this morning, but Brian has explained some of the uh, changes that uh, have been made. Um, the practical question for listeners is: Will it make a difference? Will the ED be less overcrowded
2: this winter? To myself, so uh, to go on the figures from the. The Delight report last year over 76,000 people attended the ED in New HL. We're predicting already that that'll hit 79,500 by the end of this year. We've seen a 7% increase in attendances between 2019 and 2022. So we know that we are, we once again are back with you, Joel, saying we're in for a long winter. And we know our patients wait. And we sincerely apologise for that. And we also know there's dignity and privacy issues. So it's trying to make that a little bit easier. So one of the initiatives is we're opening an over 75s unit called OPAC. And it's older persons assessment unit of the emergency department. So at least because we're seeing high numbers of frail elderly coming into the emergency department and it's not good that they have to wait on a trolley. So we're trying to alleviate that pressure definitely in the ED for patients. We also see high numbers of patients coming in now that are P1s, they're triaged as P1, which in effect means they're emergency into that are, are you know, their lives are under threat, which heart attacks is an increase in that as well. But that is the start. But one of the things that I suppose if you're asking me as the CEO and the clinical directors, what is worrying us about the winter would be, of course, COVID is on the rise. You can see the figures in the media over the last few days, but equally the flu. Um, and we've looked to Australia to see what has happened in Australia and it has been a tough season and it, it may be because people were mask wearing and the antibodies are low but the flu has hit Ireland and the flu jab is now available. And I would really encourage people to get that because we will see a lot of respiratory illness coming into the hospital. So it's going to be a very busy winter.
1: Hmm. And and Brian, I mean, part of the frustration here, I think, is, you know, there was a new ED and people uh, assumed that that would mean a radical improvement. And then more beds came online and there was a similar assumption. But it appears to have been overtaken by the needs. Yeah, the capacity out of the hospital is still short of what to demand.
0: Like when you have close on 80,000 people attending the emergency department and you have another 36,000 people that attend the local injuries unit and another 12,000 people that attend the medical assessment units, there's a significant need within the Midwest and, and a limited access to patients. So there are a number of initiatives that have been set... Are Have been set up in the community. Some are in their infancy, some are developed, like integrated care for the older person's ICPOP, where patients that are at risk of being referred to the ED or even referred to the ED can be referred to the integrated care service. And there's been over 600 referrals. To ICPOP already this year, and that's, that's concentrated around the older person who has frailty issues and is at risk of falls and at a risk of decline. So, there are issues in the and community. And the population is getting older on The population is
1: getting older, the, the population is basis, getting,
0: older, yeah. the population's getting, getting frailer. We will be reopening our surgical assessment unit for direct access for GPs, and in a short number of weeks, our medical assessment unit in UHL for direct access to GPs, and hopefully. That will reduce the absolute need for the first point of contact to be the emergency department. Uh, But how
1: concerned are you that GPs are under pressure as well? And clearly primary care helps avoid the ED, doesn't it?
0: GPs are under significant pressure. One of the things that came out of the Deloitte report is there's 6% more people are attending our emergency department who have not seen a general practitioner. Because they either cannot access a general practitioner, don't have one, or the general practitioner can't see them, you know, within the time frame that the patient thinks they need to be seen. Primary care and general practitioners, they there there are a number of um, GP practices that have closed and it is very difficult to to attract single handed GPs, particularly to the rural parts of the Midwest. I know there are a lot of national initiatives going on, you know, they're talking about the need for 2,000 additional GPs in the next seven years. So you have a limited, you know, there's a limited labour force there and all aspects of healthcare are under pressure in all regions of the country.
1: No, I mean, we do reflect, um, from time to time on, you know, the cardiac care that is in the hospital and people have had very good experiences there, cancer treatment, for example. So, I mean, there is a consciousness that there's a lot of, of good things happening, um, too. But the emergency department dominates thinking here and, and, and you know, I, you can understand why. Because the worry people have again this winter is, oh, it, when I have to go to the ED, I need to go and you should go. Right. but what's going to happen to me and how long am I going to be left lying there in an undignified situation or worse
2: Correct and we hear that over and over all the time and we all think that going to any hospital actually in 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 the region or in the west coast that how long will I be there and where will I go and that's why we're trying to reopen the surgical assessment for the GPs for so direct access and the medical assessment we had to change that during COVID because we had to, we had to keep patients and staff safe um, there will still be time in ED where people will be waiting. We'll try and, and divide it up a bit further, but it, w- it will be the same um, if the numbers continue to rise up to 79,500 by year end. Other options is the thing. People need to see their GP if and, they can, but Brian has described the issues there and the pressure there. they're use, I mean,
1: Just, just to give people a sense of what, what is the average waiting time in ED right now? And what's it likely to be by January? Yeah. So the
0: the average waiting time is under eight hours, what we call the PET time, the patient experience time. But that can vary, Joe. The, the triage time has reduced down to 24, 25 minutes from the time you arrive till you have your initial triage. And the patient experience time is reducing. That's what the PMIU or the HSC support team in, in the weekly figures, we see, we see that all the time. But that doesn't mean p- some people aren't going to wait longer because that's an average. Some ambulances will come in, the patient will be direct into resus, so if that person has been seen straight away, and the average. That adds to date, the average. Yeah, are, others who are going average, to wait yeah. more than twelve hours. We triage every patient according to this, you know, the severity of their presentation or how critical they are. And patients who are triage, you know, one or two, they need to be seen immediately. And those that are three or four, unfortunately, have to wait because of the demands we see. 400 more ambulances a month arrive in Limerick than arrive in any other Model 4. So we're seeing a lot of ambulance transfers and they generally are sicker, more critical patients and they have to be seen directly. Right.
1: And if you start getting, as you think you might, a surge of COVID cases, does that require um, ongoing isolation of a COVID case. Is that still happening in hospitals?
2: Absolutely, yeah. We have to keep the other patients safe as well and we have a lot of vulnerable patients that COVID would, it would be detrimental if they got COVID and that's where the vaccination programme has proven very strong in that we've all been vaccinated and it's safer. So you, you, people who come into hospital with um, COVID are usually quite sick um, or they we discover they have COVID when we swab them when they arrive and they're not sick at all. So we have to manage all that cohorting and we have a, a marvellous microbiology and infection prevention control team that manage that. But it is a, an area that we have to stream through and that's why staff will still wear masks, still are, still swab for COVID and are very vigilant okay. on it. Yeah. But
1: ultimately you are facing another very challenging winter.
2: Yes. Yes. Okay. and I, I would lo- I'd love to give more hope to people but it's going to be very challenging but the, uh, as uh, the CCD or the Chief Clinical Director said in the Oireachtas Health Committee, the arithmetic is very simple um, and despite all of the chaos and noise that we hear, we do not have enough beds to deal with the demand and the demand continues to rise mm.
1: As the Deloitte report showed but also uh, those are longer term solutions, they're not yes. going to solve the problem this winter or maybe even next in reality Okay, well, listen, thank you very much for coming and answering the questions um, this morning. And uh, at least people have a context and uh, some information um, for them and their families if they do end up in that situation. Uh, But also the advice you've given around um, taking vaccines and the like as well. Uh, Thank you to Colette Cowan, who's CEO of University of Limerick Hospitals Group and Brian Lennon, who's the chief clinical director of the group as well.
0: Your views, your news, your lyric today with Joe Nutch on
2: Live 95.